Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. This is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please support the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the ancient world. Thanks again for listening. Armageddon is a term that gets thrown around as shorthand for the end of the world. But as many of you know, it's not an event, but a place. In the book of Revelation, Armageddon is the plain where the armies of good and evil gather on the final day of judgment. But the name originated as Har-Megiddo, the mount or mound of Megiddo. And the remains of Bronze Age Megiddo still exist around 20 miles southeast of the modern city of Haifa in northern Israel. If you wanted to, and had the money, and, you know, your paperwork was all in order, you could go visit Armageddon right now. They're actually building a new airport there. I'm not joking. Long before any talk of the end times, Megadote earned an unenviable reputation as a stage for military conflict. Which, in fairness, is what can happen when you sight your city at a narrow pass along a major trade route linking Egypt with Syria, Anatolia, and Mesopotamia. It can make you rich, it can make you powerful, it can definitely make you a target. The earliest recorded Battle of Megiddo was fought in 1457 BC. At the time, the territories west of the Euphrates were home to dozens of minor Canaanite city-states of varying size and influence, and Megiddo was up near the top of the list. Actually, it was one of those times, like the early Iron Age, when the major powers were mostly out of the picture. The main exception was the northern Syrian kingdom of Mitanni, which had made a few local inroads. On the flip side, the last confirmed Egyptian campaign, under the pharaoh Thutmose I, was already nearly 50 years in the past. The previous year, 1458, word had come north that the latest Egyptian pharaoh, Hatshepsut, had died. Times of regime change are oftentimes for testing political boundaries. On this occasion, the Mitanni king Shaush Tatar ordered one of his vassals, the king of Kadesh on the Orontes River, to join forces with the king of Megiddo and do a little recon down south. 
Since Megiddo was roughly halfway between Kadesh and the Egyptian border, marching the Kadeshi army south was already a pretty aggressive move. Especially since, between them, Megiddo and Kadesh could apparently field an army of ten to 15,000. It's possible that number is inflated and may also include Mitanni military advisors along with contingents from nearby cities and tribes. In fact, there's an interesting theory about some of the local auxiliaries. At last year's ASOR conference, Dr. Lauren Monroe of Cornell University gave an interesting talk on an early Iron Age poem that was later repurposed for inclusion in the Old Testament Song of Deborah. She makes a pretty convincing argument that a biblical hymn describing a number of proto-Israelite highland tribes banding together to oppose the lowland kings of Canaan was actually a story of highlanders and lowlanders banding together to confront a common foe. Based on the timing, the details of the conflict, and the local geography, the Iron Age poem may have been inspired by the earlier Battle of Megiddo. And who may have been this common foe? Well, there were on pretty solid ground. Because the minute he heard news of armies massing, the brand new pharaoh mustered his troops and marched them north into Canaan. Though brand new isn't really quite accurate. In fact, Thutmose III had already co-ruled Egypt with his aunt and stepmother, the pharaoh Hatshepsut, for 22 of his 24 years. But now that he had the throne to himself, he intended to make his mark. Which, as Alexander and Caesar could tell you, is often easier when you write your own press. So we actually have an insanely detailed account of the entire campaign, recorded by Thutmose's military scribe Cheneni, and later inscribed at Karnak. If you believe this version, Thutmose's strategy was so bold and daring and immediately successful that he nearly won the battle in a single day. But, well, I'll let his scribe tell it. Thutmose was in their center, Amun being the protection of his person in the melee and the strength of Set pervading his members. Then the enemy saw his majesty prevailing over them, and they fled headlong to Megiddo with faces of fear. They abandoned their horses and their chariots of silver and gold. Now, if only His Majesty's army had not given up their hearts to capturing the possessions of the enemy, they would have captured Megiddo at this time. So, because they stopped to gather loot, the Egyptians lost the initiative, and Thutmose was forced to lay siege to Megiddo for seven long months. When it finally fell, Thutmose spared its defenders' lives, but stripped the city and surrounding countryside of pretty much everything of value. In fact, a substantial part of the Karnak inscription is a detailed list of the plunder, including 900 chariots, 200 suits of armor, 500 bows, and 387,000 cows. He also sent the princes of the land, bearing their tribute of silver, gold, lapis lazuli, and turquoise southward. Then his majesty appointed princes anew for every town. I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that Thutmose's campaign had a fairly disruptive effect on Canaan. 
And you can multiply this by a dozen more campaigns into Canaan, Syria, Phoenicia, and adjacent territories over the next two decades. Including one where Thutmose managed to capture a lovely little town on the Euphrates River named Carchemish. But again, in the south, the disruption led to the abandonment of numerous Middle Bronze Age cities and rural sites, and the foundation, refoundation, or repurposing of others. Two of the more interesting examples of the latter were the cities of Beth Shean and Tel Rehov. Beth Shean was sited at the junction of the Jordan River Valley and the Jezreel Valley, and was known in later classical times as Scythopolis. At the time of Thutmose III's invasion, the site was already home to a Canaanite temple to Baal or possibly the war god Reshef, similar in design to those at Ebla and Alalak. But to set the stage for future campaigns, Thutmose decided to repurpose Beth Shean as an Egyptian garrison town. One early Egyptian embellishment to the site was a new temple dedicated to Mekal, the great god, lord of Beth Shean. A recovered stele shows the deity seated on a throne with two Egyptians paying homage. At the same time, around three miles away, a new city was founded atop a sparsely populated Bronze Age tell named Rahav. By its earliest mentions the following century, Tel Rahav was already a major city. According to archaeologist and historian Amihai Mazar, who is our source for much of today's episode, the city's estimated area of 10 hectares is somewhat larger than nearby Pella, roughly similar to that of Megiddo, and more than twice as large as the Egyptian government center at Beth Shean. Tel Rahav's fairly rapid growth may have been a deliberate initiative on the part of the Egyptian administration, an attempt to create a Canaanite polity that could be easily managed and provide the nearby Egyptian garrison with produce and other commodities. In fact, the new city's population was likely made up of Canaanites displaced by Thutmose III's campaigns. Under the subsequent 19th or Ramesside dynasty, both Beth Shean and Tel Rahav continued to grow and prosper. Beth Shean was completely rebuilt, and under the 20th dynasty, the city gained large administrative buildings and a palace for the local Egyptian governor. At the same time, Mazar notes that Tel Rahav became the center of a Canaanite city-state administered by a local ruler who perhaps controlled a large part of the Beth Shean Valley and some adjacent territory to the west and northwest, while being under the supreme control of the Egyptian governor at Beth Shean. Recovered finds highlight some distinctions between the two sites. While half the pottery at Beth Shean was in an Egyptian style, favored by its Egyptian administrative and military population, the majority of the pottery at Tel Rahav was a local Canaanite style. Though it's worth noting that a few pots and jars were imported from Philistine Ekron and even Anatolian Miletus. Of course, the 20th Egyptian dynasty ruled during the era of the Bronze Age Collapse. While the Sea Peoples destroyed the inland sites of Hazor, Megiddo, and Lachish, they never penetrated as far as the Jordan Valley. But the local region didn't escape unscathed. 
I mentioned a few episodes back that Egypt largely withdrew from Canaan during the reign of Ramesses VI. One of the outposts the Egyptians abandoned was the garrison at Beth Shean. It may not have been an entirely passive withdrawal. Parts of the site suffered violent destruction, likely at the hands of local Canaanites, or possibly even Habiru. Whoever was to blame, it was the Canaanites who occupied the city. I also noted a few episodes back that after the Israelite King Saul was killed by the Philistines at Mount Gilboa, they displayed his head, sword, and armor at Ashkelon. But his body and those of his sons were supposedly displayed at this new Canaanite iteration of Beth Shean. And what about Tel Rahav? Well, that's probably the more interesting story. Because all the way from its Egyptian foundation in the late Bronze Age, through the Bronze Age collapse, and into the early Iron Age, Tel Rahav kept right on chugging along. It's actually one of very few sites that preserves a highly detailed archaeological record of this entire time span, with zero breaks due to violent destruction or abandonment which makes it an excellent vehicle for tracking developments right down through the time of our story. According to Mazar, in the wake of the Egyptian withdrawal of the late 12th century BC, Tel Rahav shows evidence for continuous, intensive, and well-planned building activities. The contemporary city was substantial and extended over the entire 10-hectare mound. It was well-planned and densely built, with domestic as well as public buildings. It's also worth noting that, in contrast to many of its contemporary neighbors, Tel Rahav apparently lacked a fortification wall. Moving into the 10th century BC, the era of the supposed unified Israelite kingdom, Tel Rahav remained one of the largest and most prosperous sites in the region. Recovered finds provide evidence of long-distance trade relations with the coastal cities of Akko, Dor, Tyre, and Sidon, and through them, as far as Attica and Euboea in Greece. Mazar also notes that commercial ties with Egypt are reflected in a considerable number of faience amulets, as well as the bones of types of fish that originated in the Nile and lagoons of the northern Sinai. Mazar also highlights other finds, including clay altars, cultic chalices, clay figurines, personal seals, and seal impressions. The Canaanite altars were often enclosed by a parapet with horns on its four corners, while some were adorned with figures of naked goddesses. Canaanite cultic practices, including the worship of Baal and Asherah, continued to predominate and there's no evidence the God of Israel was worshipped in the city. Or at least not yet. Both bronze and iron metallurgy were practiced at Tel Rahav. One of the major sources of copper was the mines we discussed a few episodes back, at Timna, Fainan, and elsewhere in the Araba region, home to the contemporary Edomites. According to archaeologist and historian Nama Yahalom Mack, the earliest bronze working at Tel Rehov was done using methods imported from Egypt. But after its withdrawal, Egyptian traditions were replaced with Canaanite ones. 
Over the course of the 10th century BC, iron became the main metal worked at Tel Rehov, likely sourced from nearby Aljun in modern Jordan. As it happens, the only written record from this period mentioning Tel Rehov is actually sourced from Egypt. Because around 925 BC, the new Egyptian pharaoh Shoshank I marched his army into Canaan. There are two main sources for Shoshank's campaign. The first is what's called the Bubastite portal at the Temple of Karnak in Egypt. The portal holds a depiction of Shoshank smiting his enemies, along with a list of roughly 150 locations supposedly conquered during the expedition. According to historian Nathan Steinmeier, while a number of these locations are too badly broken to read, many names are still intact and can be used to create a basic map of the campaign. Oh, and I should mention that I've also created a few new maps for this season. The links are in the blog post. The second source is the biblical account, which refers to Shoshank as Shishak. The campaign evidently had two main prongs, with troops sent into two different regions to accomplish different goals. From the Philistine city of Gaza, one force marched southwest through the Negev Desert and into the Araba Valley. Steinmeier notes that at least one factor driving the campaign was likely gaining greater control over the region's copper trade, as well as gaining direct access to the copper mines of the Araba Valley. As discussed a few episodes back, after Egypt's withdrawal, regional copper production actually increased under the semi-nomadic Edomites. It's likely that the newly emergent 22nd dynasty wanted to take advantage of this burgeoning source of copper. Consequently, the southern prong may have been tasked with securing local copper mines or instituting some sort of Egyptian control over regional copper production. Even if this was the campaign's main goal, it's the northern prong that gets most of the press, because this is the force that the Bible tells us plundered the city of Jerusalem. The biblical account also gives us a political motivation. In the latter years of King Solomon's reign, a senior official named Jeroboam was getting an earful of widespread Israelite discontent with Solomon's many extravagancies. Nudged by a prophecy, Jeroboam started intriguing to split the kingdom and make himself king of the ten northern tribes. When his conspiracy was discovered, he was forced to flee from Israel to Egypt and the court of Shoshank I. When Solomon died a few years later, his son Rehoboam ascended the throne. Jeroboam came back north to petition the new king for tax relief for the ten northern tribes. When Rehoboam decided to go all contrarian and raise their taxes instead, the ten tribes withdrew their allegiance to the house of David and proclaimed Jeroboam their king. According to the Bible, this event resulted in the creation of the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital at Shechem. Only the tribes of Judah and Benjamin stayed loyal to Rehoboam, forming the new southern kingdom of Judah with its capital at Jerusalem. And, spoiler alert, the kingdoms will spend the next few centuries in almost perpetual war. In the biblical account, Shoshank, or Shishak, 
arrived at Jerusalem in Rehoboam's fifth year with an army of 60,000. The city surrendered without a fight, and Shoshank carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace, including a la Indiana Jones, the legendary Ark of the Covenant. Interestingly, Jerusalem is not included in the list of cities inscribed on the Bubastite portal at Karnak. But Steinmeier highlights archaeological evidence that the nearby agricultural settlement of Tel Moza, along Shoshank's likely path to Jerusalem, was destroyed at around this time. So really, it's hard to say. Going by the other cities listed on the portal, Shoshank proceeded north from Jerusalem to the Israelite capital of Shechem, now ruled by his former house guest Jeroboam, then to Tirzah and east to the Jordan. And following the river north, he soon arrived at the cities of Tel Rahav and Beth Shean. While both cities are listed on the portal, and were therefore considered part of the campaign, neither city shows evidence of contemporary destruction. In fact, it seems highly likely that the northern prong of Shoshank's campaign was less about conquest and devastation and more about collecting tribute, in a similar fashion to Tiglath-Pileser and his swing through northern Syria. Either way, after visiting a few more northern cities, recorded as Shunem, Tanakh, and Megiddo, Shoshank likely returned back home. Though it isn't included in the portal list, the discovery of a statue base bearing his name from the Phoenician city of Byblos suggests that Shoshank may have visited the city, most likely by ship. The inscription in the Phoenician script records that this is the statue that Shoshank brought Abi Baal, king of Byblos, from Egypt for Balat Gebal, his lady. Along with reasserting Egyptian power in Canaan, a major outcome of Shoshank's campaign was increased Egyptian involvement, or at least interest, in the Levantine metals trade. And in that vein, there's one last topic I wanted to touch on. Mazar notes that shortly after Shoshank's campaign, the citizens of Tel Rahav began construction of a new, well-planned, and densely built urban quarter of the city conventionally known as Stratum 5. Right in the heart of this newly built district, archaeologists uncovered something entirely unexpected. The remains of 180 beehives. I know what you're saying, Scott, enough with the bees. What is it with you and the bees? I'm joking, I've never mentioned bees on this podcast before. But I am totally going to right now. So let me start with a few stats. Mazar details that each of the 180 cylindrical clay beehives had a volume of around 56 liters. One end of each cylinder was enclosed by a clay wall with a small flying hole that allowed the bees to enter and exit the hive, while the opposite end was fitted with a portable clay lid that allowed for honey extraction. The Tel Rahav apiary, or bee yard, remains unparalleled elsewhere in the archaeology of the ancient Near East or the Mediterranean world. It's estimated that this amount of hives could produce around 500 kilograms of honey and 50 to 70 kilograms of beeswax per year, 
And somewhat surprisingly, beeswax rather than honey was the more expensive and in-demand product. Why, you may ask? Well, several reasons. Beeswax was used for medical purposes, sealing, and wax writing boards. But above all, it was an indispensable part of the metal casting process called the lost wax method. In fact, it's likely for this very reason that Tel Rahav beeswax may have been exported to the Phoenician coast, south into Egypt, or north to the cities of Syria. One of the oddest things about the apiary was that it was situated smack dab in the middle of a newly built, densely populated suburb. Because based on the number of hives, we are literally talking about over a million bees. Oh my god, can you imagine the buzzing? It must have been literally insane. I mean, I guess you could get used to it, at least theoretically. Mazar also speculates that a powerful local family, dripping with bee money, may have forced the situation. Either way, there's another super interesting aspect that served to mitigate things. At least somewhat. Because the bees, they weren't from the local neighborhood. The Syrian honeybee, your Apis mellifera syriaca, is fairly aggressive and not particularly productive. But Mazar notes that the recovered remains from the Tel Rahav apiary didn't come from this type of bee. Instead, they came from Apis mellifera anatolica, the Anatolian honeybee, which is both more productive and less aggressive than its Levantine cousin. Now, here's the rub. The latter bee's acclimation to the Anatolian climate makes it unlikely that these bees migrated into Canaan. Which raises the possibility that Tel Rahov beekeepers imported bee swarms from Anatolia, a minimal distance of about 500 miles. I know, right? It may sound crazy, but it's actually not. There are records of a local governor a century or two later discussing the import of bees. And again, if you're dropping a bee yard in the center of your town, it's worth paying the premium for the mellow bees. Trust me. Now, there is kind of a sad coda to the story, which is that sometime around the turn of the 9th century BC, the apiary at Tel Rahav was violently destroyed. Not the whole town, just the apiary district. We don't know who, we don't know how, we don't know why. Though I might suggest that the constant buzzing of a million bees might give anyone a few bad ideas. Next episode, it's back up north to Carchemish, where I'll refocus on the political situation of northern Syria in the last few decades of the 10th century BC. This is the era when we begin to see a gradual increase in the number and variety of royal monuments, royal inscriptions, and other generally helpful information. As we continue to progress through the Dark Age tunnel toward the very bright light at the end. The light, of course, of an oncoming train by the name of Neo-Assyria.
The Ancient World Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Along with My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, The Explorers Podcast, and other great shows.